Art is a tremendous expression of skill and beauty, and yet art sometimes is an expression of irrationality and strangeness. Uh, There are many pieces of so-called art that are absurd, but they're not pointless. Uh, Even absurd art says something. On April 9, 1917, French artist Marcel Duchamp changed art history. He anonymously submitted an art piece to the Society of Independent Artists Salon in New York. One art professor says uh, the piece is, quote, arguably the most intellectually captivating and challenging art piece of the 20th century, end of quote. At the time, ironically, the society's board didn't consider Duchamp's uh, anonymous submission art, so they rejected it. Duchamp was on the society's board. And he resigned. What was the controversial piece? A urinal laid on its back, signed and dated R. Mutt, 1917, and titled Fountain. An anonymous editorial was written about Duchamp's fountain. It said this, quote, Whether Mr. Mutt, with his own hands, made the fountain or not has no importance. He chose it. He took an ordinary article of life and placed it so that its useful significance disappeared under the new title and point of view, created a new thought for that object, end of quote. What makes Duchamp's fountain so provocative and unique is its statement that the artist alone decides what art is. And Duchamp pushed the meaning of art beyond creation into mere conception. Duchamp ignored absolutes, ignored truth, skill, and beauty in art, and redefined art according to his concept of it. A British art site said this about Duchamp's art. Duchamp's ready-mades also asserted the principle that what is art is defined by the artist. Choosing the object is itself a creative act. Canceling out the useful function of the object makes it art, and its presentation in the gallery gives it a new meaning. This move from artist as maker to artist as chooser is often seen as the beginning of the movement to conceptual art, as the status of the artist and the object are called into question. At the time, the ready-made was seen as an assault on the conventional understanding not only of the status of art, but its very nature, end of quote. That's very interesting. Art cannot be whatever anyone wants it to be. If I choose air and display it creatively in some museum, am I a genius? Hardly. It hardly seems right to put a urinal laid on its back alongside the Mona Lisa, David, and the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And people are doing just that with the gospel today. They assault the gospel's nature by refashioning it into what they want it to be, and they still call it gospel. Duchamp, he's certainly thought-provoking, no doubt. But when people apply his ideas to life and to the gospel, bad things happen. Is the gospel whatever the believer thinks it to be? One of Duchamp's most uh, famous ready-made art pieces is titled L-H-O-O-Q. 
Duchamp took a postcard of Da Vinci's Mona Lisa and penciled in a little mustache and goatee on it. It sold for $750,000. Some art enthusiasts consider the piece an attack on traditional art and the Mona Lisa itself. Now, there's something here for us. If anything is added to the gospel, like works of the law, no matter how small the addition may seem, it is a defacement of the gospel as well as an assault on it. Adding works of the law to the gospel is like adding a little mustache and goatee to the Mona Lisa. It's distasteful and it's offensive. There is only one gospel and is infinitely beautiful. And it must not be defaced in any way. In only five introductory verses, Paul laid out significant gospel doctrines, including his apostolic authority, Christ's resurrection from the dead, the divine origin of grace and peace, Christ's penal substitutionary atonement and redemption, the covenant of redemption, Christ's active and passive obedience, and even doxology. Paul's salutation leaves no room for good works to contribute to salvation in any way. And as we'll continue to see, Paul distinguished between the law and the gospel and adamantly refuted the idea that works of the law can contribute to justification because justification is by faith alone. In verses 6 through 10, Paul expressed the big problem. And the reason he was dumbfounded and so mad. Unlike his other letters to the other churches, Paul didn't begin Galatians warmly. Not at all. Straight to the point he went. They were abandoning the one true gospel. And Paul's righteous anger surfaced. And before we get too far, ask yourself, what's Paul so worked up about? And is it worth getting worked up about? What's, what's the big deal? You have to ask yourself that. When you encounter strong words in the Bible, you need to consider why they are so strong. Paul's words were strong because the gospel is infinitely glorious and God is jealous for its integrity, preservation, and propagation. There is only one gospel, and it is the gospel of the glory of God and redemption found in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Any alteration of that gospel is an assault on the glory and beauty of God. Some churches have so defaced the gospel that it's unrecognizable. Some have added a silly little mustache and goatee, and some have just spray-painted all over it. Saints, we are seeing 2 Timothy 4.3 happen right before our eyes in our own community. The time is here when people don't want to endure sound gospel teaching, but having itching ears, they instead surround themselves with teachers to suit their own passions. They turn away from listening to the truth and they meander off into myths and silly imitations of the gospel. Saints, many professing Christians don't even realize that they've lost the gospel altogether. And like the Galatian church in Paul's day, the American church is in crisis. I perused some results uh, from the 2018 study on evangelical theology in America done by Ligonier Ministries, strong organization, along with Lifeway Research, and the results are alarming. They're scary, folks. 
We have a crisis in evangelical Christianity. Saints, professing Christians, people who think they're okay, are confused about the gospel. They don't know it. Now, 91% of evangelicals affirm justification by faith alone. And 97% affirm the Trinity. That's good. That's really, really good. But then, 78% of evangelicals believe Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Which is Arianism, an ancient heresy. 78%. So, 78% of evangelicals in America have the wrong Jesus. That's frightening. Paul used strong words in Galatians. And today, some of my words, I'll just tell you up front, they're going to be strong. And that might make you feel uncomfortable, might make you think I'm insensitive, but you have to understand why my words are strong. The one and only gospel is infinitely glorious. And God is jealous for its integrity and its preservation and its propagation. And so, my friends, it is loving to distinguish the true gospel from counterfeits. No mustache, no goatee, just the radiant beauty and glory and supremacy of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, I'll begin with this exclusive divisive, and polarizing statement. There is only one gospel. The only gospel is the great news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's precious Son and salvation found in Him alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and as it is found presented in Scripture alone. Any so-called gospel that adds to or subtracts from God's clear gospel revealed in Scripture is a false gospel. Paul said in verse 6 that the Galatians were turning to a different gospel, heteros, like heterodox or heterosexual, meaning different or of another kind. So you have the one true gospel... And any alternative gospel is a heteron, a different gospel, and a different gospel is no gospel at all. Paul clarified in verse 7, not that there is another one. Paul, Paul wanted to be absolutely clear that he was understood. There is only one gospel. When he said different gospel, he was making the point that a perverted gospel was being promoted as the true gospel but that it wasn't gospel at all. The different gospel wasn't an abandonment, this is very important to understand, of Jesus and grace altogether. It simply added works of the law to grace, therein effectively nullifying grace. He added in verse 7 that some want to distort the gospel of Christ. A distorted gospel is no gospel at all. The moment you change the gospel, you lose the gospel. In verse 8, Paul mentioned the preaching of a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. And in verse 9 said, a gospel contrary to the one you received. And contrary may mean it, it, it may sound the same. It may sound the same, but it has 
little slight tweaks here and there, adding, subtracting, adding, subtracting, you lose the gospel. Paul said quite bluntly in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In other words, I can't believe you guys. What are you doing? Now, why was Paul exasperated? Why all the emotion? Turning to a different gospel is actually turning away from God. Whenever you turn to something, you're at the same time turning away from something else. Turning to your shadow is turning away from the sun. When someone turns to a different gospel, a distorted gospel, a contrary gospel, they are turning away from the one and only gospel, which equates to turning away from God himself. It's not merely doctrinal, folks. It's relational. Now, here's what I think was happening. Paul had just planted the churches in southern Galatia. Then, a short time after leaving Galatia, Paul got news that false teachers were proclaiming a different gospel, and the Galatians were accepting it. They were turning to a different gospel. Dr. Philip Ryken noted this. The fact that the verb occurs here in the present tense is significant. It describes something the Galatians were in the process of doing at that very moment, end of quote. So the good news was, it wasn't too late. They were in the process of turning, but it was a crisis. A crisis, and Paul was responding strongly because it was a crisis. Notice Paul said they were deserting him who called them in the grace of Christ, which refers to God the Father and his gracious and effectual call to salvation. Now stay with me. Here comes some theology for you, but this is important. The universal call of the gospel, universal, came to the Galatians externally through Paul's gospel preaching. The gospel, universal gospel call goes to everybody. That call is for everyone. We should preach the gospel and get it out to everybody. God's effectual call came to the Galatians internally in their hearts. God's effectual call is his powerful and always effective call, which always ends in salvation for those he effectually calls. Unlike the universal call of the gospel, God's effectual call is only for his elect and always leads to regeneration, repentance, faith, justification, and so forth. In other words, salvation. Now, Paul taught this very clearly. We could go to multiple places, but let's just go to Romans 8.30. This is what Paul said. And those whom he predestined, he also called. That's effectual call. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So when God effectually calls a sinner, those called sinners are subsequently justified and inevitably, in time, glorified. God's effectual call actually brings sinners to Christ. God's saving grace is not potential, it is effectual. It it always works. And notice the call is in the grace of Christ or by the grace of Christ. Grace, 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 and not works. Grace is Paul's emphasis. The great New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce wrote this. 
The grace of which Paul speaks is not simply a benevolent attitude on the part of God or Christ. It is demonstrated in God's saving act in the death of Christ by which the undeserving, the ungodly, are redeemed, justified, and reconciled. Pay attention now. Grace and law are mutually exclusive as means of justification. Did you get that? Grace and law are mutually exclusive as means of justification. He goes on, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of legal works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul was roping the Galatians back in with the lasso of the gospel of God's marvelous grace. He struggled to pull them from the mouth of the beast of a different gospel, which considered works of the law a contributing means of justification. Paul would not stand by and watch the Galatians desert God, the God of grace, in exchange for some distorted gospel, so he went to work. Saints, we must heed Paul's warning. Turning to a different gospel is not a matter of a few tolerable doctrinal differences, but a matter of deserting God himself. Bow hunters, if your sights are off by a fraction, what happens? You totally miss. Just a fraction. Gone, deer runs off, you see the white tail in the air. Next, a distorted gospel is troubling to the soul and devastating for people. Paul wrote in verse 7, There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Distorted gospels trouble people. They pull people away from God. The false teachers advocated Jesus plus circumcision which heaped religious burden. It didn't even sound like much because think about how a Jew would hear circumcision. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. Heaping religious burden on the people. That's not gospel. The false teachers were likely Jewish Christians from Jerusalem. Hey, if you want to be saved, you got to trust in Christ and be circumcised and do works of the law. In, in fact, it's better if you're just Jewish Christians well, that sounded reasonable. Paul was outraged. That was a different, disturbing, and damning gospel. Understand three important things about tampering with the gospel. Number one, different gospels trouble the soul. Jesus plus works equals a troubled soul. Martin Luther said, quote, Mark here diligently that every teacher of works and of the righteousness of the law is a troubler of the church and of the consciences of men, end of quote. Number two, different gospels are distortions of the one and only gospel. Again, Luther wrote this, for because they mingle the law and the gospel, they must needs be perverters of the gospel. Where the righteousness of the law ruleth, there cannot the righteousness of grace rule, for one of them must give place to the other. Do you understand that? When works of the law are combined with grace, even in the slightest way, the gospel of grace is lost. 
It's lost. It is either righteousness by the law or righteousness by grace. It cannot be a combination. A combination is a denial of the gospel. Number three, different gospels devastate people's lives. More on this in a bit. But Paul used the word accursed. Accursed. That's a strong word. Anyone who advocates a different, distorted, and contrary gospel is at least in danger of God's curse. That's eternally serious, folks. Distorting the gospel troubles the soul and it devastates people's lives. And saints, sometimes the distortion is oh so subtle. It's clever. It's convincing. It sounds right. And it's made, this is really tough, by really likable people. I like that guy. He's nice. He says some great stuff. No, wait, what was that? Okay, I guess he's still cool. Really likable people. Listen carefully. We must not allow the likability of false teachers to mask the tragic effects of their false gospel. The one gospel stands as it is, never to be added to or subtracted from by anyone. Listen very carefully to verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul had preached the one and only gospel to the Galatians, and it is assumed that that gospel is actually clear. It's understandable. Uh, The gospel is rational. It's well-defined, and it stands as it is forever. That gospel is a historical and an unchanging and an unchangeable truth of Christ. So even if Paul himself, even if another apostle should return to the Galatians and alter the gospel in some way, the Galatians should stick with the original gospel. And even if an angel, a a messenger from God, shows up and introduces a change to the gospel in some way, the Galatians should stick with the original gospel. Now, of course, Paul is using impossibilities to make a point. You have to understand what he's doing. No, Paul was never going to alter and change the gospel. No, an angel of God was never going to change the gospel. But Paul's exaggeration was to make a point. The gospel can never, ever, 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 ever be added to or subtracted from. It stands as it is forever. Jesus Christ gave himself for sinners to deliver them from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father to whom be glory forever and ever. And Jesus Christ is alive because God raised him from the dead. That can never be added to and never subtracted from. To add circumcision or works of the law to that exclusive gospel is to fundamentally change the gospel into grace plus works, which destroys grace and the gospel altogether. Do you understand that? I'm trying to make it clear, folks, that you can't mix the words. I'm just saying it like it is. To say Jesus plus anything is to lose the gospel altogether. Mustaches and goatees. And here's where 
the penalty of distorting the gospel becomes quite frightening. Anyone who preaches or believes a modified gospel is accursed. Paul was calling a curse down on the false teachers. And he was emphatic about it. He was so emphatic, he said, why don't I say this twice? He's like shouting this. Listen closely. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The word is anathema. Remember that word, anathema. Anathema is a Greek noun meaning a person under a curse. Anyone who tampers with the gospel deserves God's curse. Deserves God's judgment, his wrath, his condemnation. Anathema is like Joshua and Israel destroying Jericho. Joshua 6 verse 17 says, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. That's what this is saying. Mess with the gospel and you deserve to be destroyed by God. Now Paul was referring to preachers of a contrary gospel. I'm adding those who believe a contrary gospel. So where am I getting that? Maybe some of you are like, Pastor, why are you adding stuff? Verse 6, those who turn to a different gospel are doing what? They're deserting God. And deserting God deserves God's curse as well. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, you don't, you don't love God? Let him be accursed. Same word. So I think it is biblically precise to say that anyone who preaches or believes a modified gospel, let them be cursed by God. I think verses 8 and 9 serve us in many important and practical ways, but here's one way. The gospel of sacred scripture is glorious and sufficient for us. We don't need more gospel communicated outside of sacred scripture. You following me? God told me, then fill in the blank, are dangerous words unless you're quoting Scripture. We don't need an angel to come and talk with us and give us more gospel. We don't need God himself to give us more gospel than he has already given us in sacred scripture. We have the best possible news there is in the one and only gospel revealed through the apostolic testimony written in scripture. Scripture, folks, is wonderfully sufficient revelation. We don't need outside revelation. We have the canon of Scripture, God's faithful word. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it like this. I love it. Please listen carefully. This is very helpful. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith in life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary logic may be shown from Scripture, to which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. We don't need new revelations of the Spirit. We have the gospel. 
The gospel is sufficient. Saints, it's ruinous when people alter that gospel and then promote their different and distorted and contrary gospel as if it was the gospel. And it's happening all around us today. Consider the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. In this different gospel, the spiritual blessings promised in Christ and received through faith are morphed into guarantees of temporal material blessings. God becomes a genie. Consider the gay Christian gospel. In this gospel, some of the true gospel is affirmed, but biblical marriage and sexuality, which Scripture describes as an analogy for the gospel, is redefined according to cultural trends. In this different gospel, clear biblical doctrine is ignored, twisted, or rejected outright, and the holiness of God and the extent of the atonement are assaulted. And some versions of the gay Christian gospel are very confusing. They actually affirm biblical marriage, while also affirming homosexual desire in the context of celibacy. As long as you're celibate and you don't act on it, they're not saying you have to repent from the desire for it, which fails to recognize that homosexual desire or any warped sexual desire is sin that must be repented of. Consider the social gospel. In this different gospel, the good news of Christ and salvation from sin, death, and hell received by faith alone is distorted into striving to overcome poverty and social justice. Listen very carefully so you don't misunderstand me. Acts done to alleviate suffering in the world are not really seen as spirit-led acts of compassion because of the gospel, but are rather integrated into the gospel itself. The gospel becomes Jesus plus social reform, social justice, and political revelation. And this confuses the gospel with applications of the gospel. Consider the Roman Catholic gospel. While affirming many good doctrines like the Trinity, virgin birth, divinity of Christ, sacredness of human life, all to be applauded, this different gospel distorts numerous, almost incalculable, essential biblical doctrines beginning with rejecting sola scriptura or the sole authority of scripture for faith and life. Not only does Roman Catholicism add extra non-inspired books to scripture, but it claims, listen carefully, that the teachings of popes and bishops are equal authorities to scripture, which in effect annuls scripture. Because so much of the magisteriums, the Pope and the, and the bishop's teachings, are directly contrary to Scripture. The different gospel of Roman Catholicism also adds works to grace in their doctrine of justification, which is the exact heresy in principle that Paul wrote Galatians to refute. The Council of Trent, which has yet to be renounced by Roman Catholics, repudiated justification by faith alone repudiated it. Listen very carefully. Canon number 12 from the Council of Trent. If anyone shall say that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy pardoning sins for Christ's sake, or that it is that confidence alone by which we are justified, let him be accursed. 
Canon 14. If anyone saith that man is truly absolved from his sins and justified because that he assuredly believed himself absolved and justified, or that no one is truly justified but he who believes himself justified, and that by this faith alone absolution and justification are effected, let him be anathema, cursed, damned. Canon 24, if anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. Those are bare-faced denials of the clear apostolic teaching of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They damn people who believe in the gospel. Those repudiations of justification by faith alone are, and don't be confused on this, they're central to Roman Catholics, uh, Roman Catholicism's understanding of the gospel And they are in and of themselves sufficient evidence that the Roman Catholic gospel is a different gospel. When you add good works to faith in the equation of justification, you lose justification. You lose grace. You lose the sufficiency of Christ's merits and atoning death. And you know what, folks? You lose the gospel. Philip Ryken said, Quote, the church's greatest danger is not the anti-gospel outside the church, it is the counterfeit gospel inside the church, end of quote. Do you know and cherish the one true gospel so deeply that you are able to detect any slight variation of it? any slight distortion of it? Does the beauty and glory of the one true gospel so thrill your heart and soul that you are grieved and you are frightened when people you love embrace a modified gospel? Is the gospel so beautiful to you that even the thought of adding works to it is repulsive? The merits and accomplishments of Jesus Christ are so precious and so sufficient to God that all counterfeit gospels are detestable to God. And we might ask, because this is sensitive stuff, we might ask, but doesn't some of this simply come down to various tolerable differences in theology? Maybe we're talking past each other on some of this. I mean, can't, can't we tolerate some of this? Not when it comes to the gospel and how someone is justified. No, there is no wiggle room on this. None. Paul couldn't have been any clearer, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He did not leave this like, hmm, I wonder what he meant. Crystal clear. Don't mess with justification by faith alone. You touch that, you lose the gospel. You lose Christ. 
That's Paul writing those words with the authority of Christ. They're Christ's words. So adding works of the law to justification, understand what that is. It is a flagrant, it is a blatant, it is a barefaced, it is a shameless denial of the sufficiency and power of God's sovereign grace and the gospel, and it is sadly a desertion of God himself. And all of the counterfeit gospels that I mentioned earlier and others, the list is long, are adding works to grace in some way. Here's why this is loving. We don't want people to be cursed by God. That's not the gospel we preach. Preach the liberation of the cross. Eternal joy of, of the cross. And that we can actually know God through Christ just by trusting in Him. We don't have to perform. We don't have to bring A plus for God to receive us. He receives us because of the merits of Christ. That's the gospel. That's good news to me because if Jonathan has to perform, I'm lost. I'm done. It's over. There is no redemption and hope for me. Don't give me Jesus plus. Give me Jesus and the right Jesus and the doctrinal Jesus and the Jesus that the apostles so clearly articulated in the scripture. We don't want people to be cursed by God, so we must get the gospel right. And we must preach it clearly and and articulately and faithfully from this pulpit every week. If I die, get someone else. Get a man who brings it straight. So that, why? So that people can find their greatest joy and pleasure in the gospel of Jesus Christ above all things to the glory and worship of God. We must be clear about the gospel and we must celebrate the gospel because there is only one gospel. Now, let me just ask, do you know what all this hype is about? What, what's the big deal, man? Preaching and believing the one and only gospel is all about serving and pleasing the master. The gospel is about the pleasure of God. Was Paul preaching the gospel to win friends and influence people? Was he trying to please man so that he would be accepted, maybe make some money? Paul preached the unadulterated gospel. He was not wishy-washy. He was not disingenuous. I'll be this to this group. I'll be that to that group. That wasn't Paul. His gospel precision, razor-sharp precision, got him martyred. But through his clear law and gospel preaching, countless people came to see the heinousness of their sin and misery, the glory and supremacy of Christ, and got saved and came to adore and revere the crucified and risen Christ. Knowing the true gospel is knowing the true God. Paul said in verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. Now let those words echo in your mind. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. You see, Paul used to be a Pharisee. Righteousness by the law. That was his bag, baby. Righteousness by the law. He persecuted Christians who trusted in grace. 
His Pharisaic legalism was driven by self-righteousness and people-pleasing, and he thought he was serving God. But Christ, in such grace, opened Paul's eyes to the one and only gospel, and his works of the law became useless. It just fell away. Paul knew. This is worthless. And Christ became priceless. Paul's motive in life and gospel ministry became the glory and pleasure of God. His preaching was set ablaze by the glory and pleasure of God. Paul was so captivated by the gospel that he was a slave of Christ. Christ had chosen him. Christ had saved him. Christ had bought him. Christ owned him. Christ commissioned him. Christ was his sole master. And as Paul preached the gospel, he preached it with the authority of his master for the glory and pleasure of God. There is only one gospel, and it is infinitely precious. And all other gospels are counterfeits and displeasing to God. Saints, Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we could boast in our own goodness and good works and accomplishments for him. (laughs) It's amazing. He died on the cross to deliver us from our sins and misery. And evil. He died to liberate us from all inclinations of self righteousness and works righteousness. To cling to works righteousness is to misunderstand the law, our condemnation under the law, and to spurn the gospel of God's saving grace. What makes the gospel beautiful, like the pearl of great price, is that there is only one. There's only one, and it is precious. The mere thought of adding works of the law to the gospel should be grotesque to you. I didn't say that right. Let's try it again. Grotesque to you. That was it. It should be gross. I don't want that. Works of the law, are you kidding me? Why would we add that to the gospel? That helps nothing. It should be grotesque because it defaces the beauty and the supremacy of Christ. And for this reason, dear people of Jerusalem Church, let us cherish together the one and only gospel. Father, you are so kind and gracious to us to communicate through the emblazoned pen of Paul. Oh boy, was he strong. And I think... Thank God you were working your spirit in him to write those things because of the severity of the situation, the crisis that arrives in the church when they turn to a different gospel. God, many churches have made a mockery of your gospel by altering it. You never gave them any authority to do so. I pray that Jerusalem Church and the churches of Mannheim and the churches of Lancaster County and the churches of Pennsylvania and the United States of America and the world would get back to the one true precious gospel. That they would not add to it and they would not subtract from it. They would simply declare it as it is and trust in its power. Lights don't save people. A rockin' band doesn't save people. An awesome-looking airport building doesn't save people, and neither does a conservative Puritan-looking building. It is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, you know this, so help us as a church to be focused on the right things. It's not pictures. 
It's not books written by our favorite author. It is the preaching of the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. Help us to get the one gospel right and to prioritize it above everything else. We need your gospel here. And if it is declared from this pulpit with passion and integrity and faithfulness, people's lives will change. And that's what we're about. Seeing your glory, your glorious grace transform people. God, do it through us and do it through the churches in Mannheim. May Mannheim be known for the place of orthodox gospel-preaching churches. It's not known for that right now, but I pray that you do a change, God. Emblazon preachers to preach the one gospel and to not be confusing with this garbage backing off from certain things, not talking about certain things. Help them to dig into your scripture, God. Oh, may your spirit lead all pastors. Keep me faithful. Help me not to fall away from the one true gospel, God, to be apostate, to prove myself not belonging to yours. God, help me to be clear in the message. I need your grace. I need your preserving grace. Pastors need your preserving grace. Our church needs your preserving grace. Help us to endure in the one gospel. Give us a passion for it where we never, ever, ever would deviate from it. Oh, God, may your sovereign grace keep us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.